So this afternoon, uh, as we study Genesis 34, um, and I don't know how many of you all have been reading ahead, um, but you might think that we've stumbled upon a stray rock that doesn't belong here. Um, it doesn't seem like this relates to the theme of Jacob's story. It's like it's out of place. And, uh, but really, uh, you know, in chapter 33, uh, we saw that Jacob was reconciled to Esau and then returned to Canaan. And then next week in chapter 35, it's going to be explained how Jacob got to Bethel. And, you know, that's the place where he had the dream about Jacob's ladder. Um, or what people call Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> and, uh, and that was the starting point of his journey. <clears throat> so in between here, we have this chapter 34, which seems to be a rabbit trail uh, that contributes very little to the plot. Um, but what is its place in the story? Um, as you and I both know, God doesn't do anything by accident. So it's not an accident that it's in here. And... Um, uh, I believe that probably a few years might have gone by between the end of chapter 33 and 34 because <clears throat> Jacob's um, children are probably a little bit older. Um, at the end of 33, he talks to Esau about, hey, the children are frail. Um, you know, we really shouldn't go on. But uh, in 34 here, they're probably a little bit older, and that's pretty typical as we go through these narrative passages. <clears throat> but um, if you remember what we were seeing in chapters 31, 32, and 33, we were seeing how uh, Jacob was this fearful and alienated guy, but he was starting to transform into the new Israel, who boldly returned to Canaan and made peace with his brother Esau, whom he had struggled with and cheated since birth. Uh, but now here in chapter 34, um, the story shows Jacob's old nature reasserting himself. Um, he's a man whose moral principles are weak, who is fearful of standing up for what's right when it may cost him. He doubts God's power to protect him. He's not believing God's promises that God had spoken to him a number of times. And he's allowing favoritism and hatred to divide him from his children just as it had divided him from his brother. And then next week in chapter 35, we'll see Jacob demonstrating faith again. So this chapter 34 is not here by accident. Um, and in my opinion, um, it's just indicative of the frailty of our humanness. It's interesting that um, Eric was, was praying that because that's, that's why I feel like God put this chapter here for us. Because um, do we not, like Jacob, go from fear to faith and then from faith back to fear and then fear to faith and faith to fear and, you know, and so forth. And do we not like Jacob walk sometimes in God's power and victory over fleshly habits and flaws that are inherent in our character? And then at other times we succumb to those same fleshly habits and character flaws again. Um, and so to me, it's not um, any accident that, that we see Jacob kind of on the upswing and now we see a chapter where it seems like he's void of God in his life. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's dig in here as we begin. And I want us to remind <coughs> us again how we study, how we've been studying narrative portions of Scripture. Um, at least you've probably seen the pattern that we've been approaching uh, Genesis with. Um, the first thing that we're really asking when we read a big narrative portion here is. What does this passage reveal to us about God? Um, 
Or how does this passage point me to God's redemptive work in history? Um, and we try to start there. Um, if you can't find anything there, are there negative examples to warn me of? Or are there positive examples to follow? So I'm not going to deviate from that rule of thumb this morning. However, if you look for God in this chapter, you'll never find him. And um, if you recall, as the chapter was being read, there was not one reference to God or the Lord, and not even one verse. And um, <clears throat> you can do the search for yourself if you like, but um, I did it this week. I decided to see if that was the case in any of the previous chapters in Genesis. And lo and behold, this is the first chapter in which there's no mention of God or the Lord. And um, so I'm convinced that that is the key or the clue that we have this morning. That um, that gives us this big idea. The absence of God gives rise to many follies in the lives of his people. So that's really the point. There's the absence of God in this chapter. Um, it's not that God has ceased in his purposes for his people. It's not even that God is taking a vacation, as many of we all are doing this summer. Um, and he's inactive. It's not that he's inactive in chapter 34, but rather it's that everyone else in this story, uh, in this series of tragic events, is living their lives without reference to God. And plain and simply, it's just the pagans and the children of Israel living as if God doesn't exist here in chapter 34. We wouldn't expect, of course, the Canaanites to, um, to have God in their lives. We would expect them to behave in a fashion that would shut God out. Um, but as far as the uh, children of Israel, um, we've seen the Lord do great things in the lives of Jacob and his family. So in, in that sense, it's kind of strange that God seems to be missing from their lives in this chapter. But the fact of the matter is that whenever a believer, including any one of us, lives our lives as if God doesn't exist, we'll find the same kind of troubles that plague the lives of unbelievers. Godlessness, which I'll define this way, failure to put God in the place he should be in our lives, has universal consequences. God's word is true and universally applies to believers and unbelievers alike when he says, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will reap corruption, but if he sows to the spirit, he will reap eternal life. And we cannot dupe ourselves into thinking that the devil would use this to deceive us and thinking that if we bring godlessness even into a church culture or, oh, let's toss in my kids to Christian school or, you know, they're growing up in a Christian family. If we have godlessness even in any of these structures, um, that we're going to avoid the consequences of reaping the natural outcome of living a life without reference to God. We cannot be duped by that. So this chapter is really a warning to us of what it can look like if we choose to live a life divorced from God. And I'm going to focus on just four things based on the characters in the story. We'll start with Dinah, who resisted submission to God and his boundaries. Um, then we'll look at Shechem and Hamor, who were driven by fleshly desires and greed. Then we'll look at Simeon and Levi, who took matters into their own hands instead of trusting God's word. And then we'll look at Jacob, who was passive in his leadership. Um, we really could probably start with Jacob, but since he's the fourth character, we'll, we'll wait on him. <clears throat> but first, 
I didn't want to skip an observation that jumped out to me here at the very beginning. And, and I was thinking about it actually last week um, uh, during the message. Um, so God had told Jacob, right? Uh, I kept flipping back to the promises. God had told Jacob to return to his country and to his kindred, right? And yet at the end of chapter 33 last week, he, he stopped. He stopped short. Um, he ended up buying, buying this plot of land on the outskirts of the city of Shechem, which was about 100 miles. I kind of like did the Google search. It's kind of cool that we can do things so easily these days, right? 100 miles short of where he left home in Beersheba from Isaac and Rebekah. Now, we don't know why he stopped short of home, but this one decision ended up causing quite a mess, right? And... Um, we're going to see next week that God promptly spoke to Jacob again and said, pack up your stuff and get out of here. You know, I mean, so why in the world did he stop? We, we don't really know. Um, but I picture it like this. I was thinking of this illustration. It would be like, you know, you're trying to raise a godly family. And um, let's just say that there's a city that has a carnival 24-7. And you know that there's a lot of bad stuff going on, let's just say in that town where the carnival's going on. But you move your family to the outskirts of town and your kids just see the carnival lights and the music and the noise going on all the time. And um, they're wondering about it. They're imagining what goes on over there, just keeping their curiosity in a constant state of adrenaline rush, wanting to satisfy it by going to see it. And, and I feel like Jacob just made a big mistake by pitching his tents, you know, next to this, this town and pr probably piquing the curiosity of his kids, specifically Dinah here. So in, in, in this scene, this first scene, we're going to see Dinah um, uh, resisting submission to God and his boundaries is, is how I put it. Um, and what she does here almost seems innocent, right, with Jacob and Leah's daughter going out to see the women of the land. Um, that is the Canaanite women. <clears throat> and I'm going to read verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Um, now to us that sounds like a friendly, neighborly thing to do. But the fact is, in that culture, girls of marriageable age were not permitted to leave their homes to go off visiting by themselves. And we don't know if either of her parents had known whether she had taken off or not. We don't know whether she violated their clear instructions for her, but it appears that she is taking some liberties that are somewhat careless or even reckless. But perhaps in Dinah's natural desire for freedom and her curiosity, there are some dangers that she is ignoring, because clearly she got herself into trouble. Um, a long time ago, over 20 years ago, I guess, um, I was working in a different job and I had a business trip to Las Vegas for some convention and um, there was five people in the company and so um, <clears throat> I went out with the guys, it was early in the evening and um, uh, just really observed the other guys just you know throwing their money down the drain and um, but then I you know I stayed really too long, is, is the point. As the evening went on, two of the guys were like, hey, let's go to this place, you know, that, you know, 
you shouldn't be going to. And um, so I said, no. And unfortunately, um, another guy that was in the group, um, he recognized the awkwardness of that situation. And he, he said, he stayed with me and was like, Andy, let's go like, find a roller coaster or something. So we found some rides to ride, you know, on the strip there or something. And so anyway, um, but the lesson is I should have been wiser in knowing that the later the night got, that things would start to go downhill. You know, that, that didn't take rocket science to figure that out. Um, and in looking at what Dinah did and decisions we make, it's not that we're not trying to reach the world with the gospel, as, as, as Eric even prayed, that we want to be in the world but not of the world, but it's that we don't take liberties that are unwarranted, that are reckless. Um, we need to stay within the boundaries that God has set. Um, God gives us boundaries for a reason. And um, as parents, uh, Lisa and I set boundaries for our children. And from our perspective, we set those boundaries so that they could live um, full, abundant lives, right? Um, but of course, as human parents, we weren't always going to get that right. I'm sure we set some boundaries maybe too loose. We set some boundaries too strong. I mean, we're parents. We're not, we're humans. We're not going to get it right. But our heart was right. That was our heart, right? We wanted them to have full, abundant lives. But the thing is, that's also God's heart, and he does always get it right. So there's never a boundary that he sets for us that is wrong. Um, and it's not uncommon during the transition from childhood to adulthood desire to desire more freedom to make decisions. But as a young person, your wisdom and experience is limited compared to your parents. And um, your parents may have already walked down many roads that they can tell you, don't walk down that road because I've already done it and it doesn't end well. Um, so this tendency to pursue freedom, which often ends up as reckless freedom, does not just go away after we are adults. Um, so the adults in the room aren't off the hook either. The temptation continues when we find ourselves discontent with our present circumstances or are frustrated with just the mundane things of life and the burdens of life. You know, it's like um, the tenth load of laundry and the dishes again this week. And, and um, you know, and, and so sometimes we find ourselves, I want to go do something different. I need some freedom here. Um, but that's why we need each other. And, and this verse came to mind just this week again. And if we really think of this verse, it's, it's astounding. If you just meditate on this verse, encourage one another day after day. Just put it in modern vernacular. Encourage one another daily, which we don't typically even do, so that none of you become hardened by the deception of sin. I mean, that's, that's what's going to happen. I mean, that's why we, we really do need to encourage one another daily because the deception of sin is going to say, you're not content. Oh, it's that another load of laundry. You need to get out of here and do something. You know, um, go get some freedom. You know, it's just, wow. So Dinah took reckless liberties, got more than she bargained for, and hundreds of people were affected by the fallout. That's another thing. That we, none of us lives on an island. We, we kind of think that when we do something, it's just going to maybe affect us. Well, the worst case is it's going to affect me. But that's, that's not true. Again, that's a deception of the devil. 
So God will fill the void that you are trying to fill by taking these reckless liberties if you let him. James 4 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Um, there was a guy that I worked with, and this, this is in relation to humbling yourself and submitting to God. Because, you know, most of us, our natural bent is we don't want to submit to anything. You know, it's like, we live in the USA, we're free. You know, we, we don't want to submit ourselves to, to things. And yet God says, um, I bought you with a price, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and if you're married, the, the scripture even says that, like, your wife owns your body and you own your wife's body. Uh, I forget exactly how it says it, but the point is, we really um, need, need to live lives of submission, just like it says in the verse there. Um, he's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. And um, there was a guy that I used to travel with on, in business, and we were going up to New York for this certain issue at a supplier, and um, <clears throat> we were going up there almost weekly for a couple of months. And, um, and I noticed, and actually he was a, he was a fellow um, Christian, and um, we'd fly on the same plane together, get off, wear the same rental car, stay in the same hotel, and um, go to dinners and you know, visit the supplier. We were always together. Um, but we'd get off the plane, get in the shuttle to the rental car place, He'd call his wife, hey, honey, I'm you know, just on the rental car shuttle, getting over to the rental car. we get in the car, we would drive. It was about a two-hour drive to the supplier because it was in upstate New York. He'd say, hey, um, I'm with Andy Herman right now. We just got to the hotel. We're checking in. Um, when we go to dinner, he'd, he'd, be, he'd call her again, hey, we're going to dinner. We're done dinner. Hey, we're going back. We're done dinner. We're going back to the hotel. Um, when we'd get out of the supplier, you know, at like five in the afternoon, he'd call and say, hey, honey, we're, um, we just got done doing business and we're going back to the hotel. And, and I used to think, wow, that guy's got, he, uh, he's really a sweet guy. I mean, he just like, that, what a relationship that he just, anyway, the bottom line was, it turns out through the grapevine, he didn't tell me this directly, but um, he had um, been unfaithful to his wife um, uh, with someone else in the company years before. And that was just one of the things that he was doing for accountability and submitting himself to, really humbling himself and submitting himself to God and, um, and doing something that he needed to do to um, demonstrate to his wife that she could have security in the relationship. And he's, you know, I traveled with him, you know, many times, and he's, that is a habit that he continues to do. I mean, it's like he's got accountability in his life, and he's got accountability in his relationship so that he does not um, go off the rails again. Um, so now we'll turn to scene two. Shechem and Hamor. Um, with Shechem and Hamor, we see that lives without reference to God look like lives driven by fleshly desires and greed. So let me just remind us here of verses 2 through 4. 
And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Um, the verbs used here in, in the Hebrew were, imply basically, of course, non-consent and non-willingness on Dinah's part, but rather forcible action on Shechem's part. And it was humbling and defiling to Dinah. Then when he talks to his father, it sounds like all the part of a spoiled brat. The irony in all of this is that Shechem became enraptured with Dinah and wanted to marry her, which is somewhat unusual here. Um, so we clearly see the greediness on Shechem's part. His attitude was, I want her, so I'm gonna have her. I'll take her. Um, he also assumes that he can just buy whatever he wants as long as he get, you know, gets the right price. Um, whereas on the other hand, Hamor, Shechem's father, is is uh, really no less greedy. He just appears to have better negotiation skills. And um, so when he goes to visit Jacob, he made no mention of his son's crime, uh, no apologies. He tries to appeal to the fleshly desire of Jacob to just want more, tries to appeal to Jacob's greed, if he can. So he says in verse 10, You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Um, it's like he's saying, hey, this is not such a horrible thing. You get to have this land. But of course, if Jacob was not you know, walking in fear here and believing God's promises, he would realize that God had already promised Jacob the land. So he's offering something that will ultimately become Jacob's anyway. And then Hamor, you know, he's just basically two-faced here because then he presents a similar appeal to his own people so that they will agree to the circumcision, but he kind of um, twists it and he says, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. So basically Hamor is just a conniver and saying whatever he needs to say to each party to get everyone to do what he wants them to do. Um, so he's just strategically thinking in terms of mergers and acquisitions, um, and uh, thinking that the world is driven by money and that happiness is found by having more things. And this is the mentality, is similar to what, um, to his sons, that whatever you want, there's a way to get it. Um, and our lives, really, devoid of God, don't look much different than that. Um, we know 1 John 2 tells us that the world is driven by unsatisfied desire, the desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And yet James tells us um, that this is precisely why there are wars and fighting uh, among people in the church. It's our desire for pleasure that pushes us to treat people in the wrong way. When we're driven by our appetites, um, we're living as if God is not part of our lives. But when we think of people as his creation and his redeemed ones and his children, if that is at the forefront of our minds, we talk differently to one another, we think differently about one another, we treat one another in a different way because we are no longer driven by our personal appetite. And it's not all about me, it's about God and it's about others that he has created for his glory.
And of course, we all know this intellectually, but the truth is we can never fill up that satisfaction quotient with things. Um, so how should we view things? <clears throat> should we just live in cardboard boxes? Um, I mean, some people do, but it's not by, by choice. Um, but would this bring glory to God? No. We should view things as God's gifts to us. And, um, and because we view them as God gift, God's gifts, um, we should just express gratitude for them. And um, it's hard to be frustrated and resentful about what you don't have when you are always being grateful about what you do have. Um, I was just thinking, um, so I did my, I waited till July 15th to do my taxes and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always a painful time. And, uh, when you, but here's the thing, this is, this is exactly what I'm saying. Um, you look and, and you have this mindset of like, can you believe how much money you get taxed and I work hard for this money and it's, you know, and right off the bat, so your mentality is like, this is my money and I gotta give my money away and there's, I can't believe how much this is. And then I started thinking, what if the tax structure changes soon and we have to give double our money, you know, or something like that. And so the thought I had was, again, what if I was just thankful for what I have? What, what if I was so grateful and thankful for what I do have that I didn't have time to think about that? For one, it's God's money. And God is, we're talking about God's sovereignty. He's in control of that. And, and, um, and then I, I got to thinking about Jesus and the apostles, right? I mean, um, you know, it always appears to us like, how do these guys live? It doesn't look like they had jobs. You know, they just walked around town all the time. But, but they had to have had jobs. They had to have had done something. It just, we just don't see that, right? Um, but you don't see them wasting a minute of energy worrying about that stuff. Um, you don't see them wasting a minute of energy trying to fight the corrupt Roman government um, and the day in which they lived, probably because they were just so laser being focused on the mission at hand. And, and I just uh, pray that God would help us to be just laser focused on the mission. Um, and as we're going, making disciples to his glory, uh, no matter, no matter what, what happens, you know, now and in the future. Um, so then we turn to scene three, Simeon and Levi. The next negative behavior we see when living lives disconnected from God is that we will tend to make to take matters that belong to God into our own hands. So we'll get to Jacob's response later, but the, the one positive we do see from this passage from Dinah's brothers is that they had an appropriate emotional response. I'm not going to talk, talk about their physical response in a minute, but... They were both grieved. The ESV translates this word indignant, but um, other translations use the word grieved, which I think is actually a better, a better translation to the original Hebrew. They were both grieved and very angry because of what had happened to their sister was an outrageous thing, like it says. And the issue is not in their emotional response, but rather in their physical actions they took from their emotional response. Um, 
you're all familiar with that verse, be angry and do not sin. Um, I feel like that verse, in my opinion, is addressing two things, the emotional response and then our action to that response. Um, uh, it's natural, in my opinion, that we have an emotional response of anger. I feel like God, that's an, a response that, that we're wired with. Um, that we would have that response for specific situations. But I think what God is saying is, in your anger, do not lose self-control and run off by taking physical actions that are sin, sinful. And in this story, we see the brothers doing that very thing, not only sinning in their physical actions, but also they go beyond that and they take vengeance in their own hands, whereas God alone says that vengeance belongs to him. They even use a blasphemous strategy. They're using the sacred symbol of their covenant relationship with God, which is circumcision. Um, I mean, you can give them the fact that they're clever, but I don't think God appreciated it. Um, God initiated the sacred symbol as a sign of his covenant with Abraham, and now they're using the sacred symbol as a weapon uh, against their intended victims. One commentator put it this way, Israel's most cherished symbol of faith now becomes a tool of inhumanity. So Shechem had indeed sinned against Dinah, but Simeon and Levi had answered with far with sin far you know, beyond the bounds. And it was, it was basically uncontrolled vengeance. Um, they weren't seeking God's counsel. They weren't praying about it. Um, we don't see any word from God to carry out this campaign that they were on. There's just hatred and unlimited greed. Uh, the reason God says that vengeance belongs to him is because he knows that nobody, no human being, is fully capable of doing it exactly right because we don't know the heart of people. And when we try to exact vengeance, we almost always do it wrong. We're never going to get it right. If we as followers of God believe that God is a just God and will set all things right, then we can be sinned against and it doesn't have to drive us mad. Um, a friend of mine who um, he bought a house from some people that um, <clears throat> I, I wish I didn't I don't know how he knew that I knew them, but I wish I never, that never came up. But it was some people, like, friend of a friend, but anyway, I, they were, they're Christians, or at least I think they are. Anyway, the point is, they, sounds like they lied on their... <laughs> disclosure statement that like, oh no, we've never had water in our basement. First time it rained, water in the basement all over the place, covered the whole floor. This friend of mine could never get over that. He tried to fight that. He tried to, and and he was, he kind of brought me into it because he's like, don't you know those people? And I was trying to be like, what? I mean, they're like, way distant friend of a friend. I mean, just, uh, and I try to, like, if you don't forgive those people, it's just going to eat at you forever. I mean, 
And so um, I don't know where it stands today, but um, anyway. Uh, but, the, you know, if you believe that God is just, he's going to set things right at some point. It, do, it doesn't, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to be the ones who, yeah, we can just say, God, you know, you're going to take care of this. Um, now, there are times that sometimes that we might bear some responsibility, right, to answer to some sin because of a place of authority that we might have. We, we could be a parent, we could be a boss, uh, we could be a judge, although I don't think we have any judges in the congregation. But um, for those situations, you you need to be seeking God's face as to how that should be administered um, so that it's within the bounds. Um, so lastly, we come to Jacob. And Jacob here demonstrates passive leadership. Um, like I said earlier, we almost should have started with Jacob because it's almost as if Jacob's passive leadership um, led to the entire situation happening in the first place. Um, actually, let me see if I skip something because there was something I wanted to share. Oh, no. No, I'll get to that here in, in Jacob because it's it's pretty it's something that I've never seen before. So I'll get to that. Um, but you can almost blame Jacob, right, because of his lack of action. I mean, you you sit there and think, how? Why did Jacob not just march right on over there and say, like, you give me my daughter back, like right now? Um, uh, <laughs> But he, but he was silent on the matter. Um, and the first thing that raises a question is, why was Diana out on her own without protection? Now, some commentators assume that Jacob really didn't care that much about Diana because she was Leah's daughter, and we've already been through what Jacob thought about Leah. Um, it, you know, it doesn't say that in here, but it's kind of not too much of a stretch in seeing that his non-response to Shechem's abuse of his daughter could be derived from that because we're going to see when we get further into chapters when Jacob, you know, thinks he lost Joseph and Benjamin, he has a complete meltdown. You know, he does not have that response here at all. And, um, and of course, we know who Joseph and Benjamin's kids were, Rachel's. Um, so it, it's just... Um, He's, he's really not, uh, not being a good dad here. Um, so we see in verse 5 that he holds his tongue and his inaction contributes to his son's frustration and anger that their sister was being treated like a prostitute. And so this is Leah's brothers and sisters, okay, um, that are having this outrage because they're seeing that their dad is not doing much about it. Um, and so they essentially see Shechem's offering payment for her to marry her as treating her like she's for hire, or that she can, you know, they could be bought off. Um, and then Jacob's passive leadership is expressed in his fearfulness in, in verse 30, when he says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So again, he's, he's fearful. He's not, he's not believing the promise that God's going to protect him. 
Um, he seems more concerned about the trouble his sons have caused him than about the horrible sin and shame that happened to his daughter, Dinah. And he's more fearful of, of man's wrath than of God's. Um, Jacob really should have been the one leading his family with wise courage, but he appears powerless or unwilling to bring a godly resolution to this difficult situation. And um, this is what I wanted to point out, which I'd never seen before. Um, I'll point it out now, because we'll see it when we get to Genesis 49, but we probably you know, might not remember this story. But unfortunately, Jacob, unlike his brother Esau, who seemed to forgive and forget, right, is not going to give the same measure of grace to Simeon and Levi. And if you just keep your finger there and you go to Genesis 49, um, 5 through 7, where Jacob is kind of doling out some, uh, I don't know whether you call these blessings, it doesn't say blessings, it just says, in 49.1, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Then you go down to verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So um, it's kind of like he, he addressed their sin, but he wasn't so quick at addressing Hamor and Shechem's sin. You know, he was more harsh on his own kids here. Um, but husbands and fathers, are you taking the lead in your families? You know, most men just want peace. Um, you want to keep the trouble to a minimum so that life can slide by without a lot of hassle. And um, I can understand that because that's just a tendency that I have. It's probably a tendency that most men have. But apart from the power of the Lord, apart from walking with God, that becomes passive leadership where you're always just Letting things go. And uh, when you think of verses like, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, that has this idea of, you know, sparks flying around, not peacefulness. And then Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That sounds like one who is not asleep at the wheel. Um... So are you taking the lead spiritually in your family? Are you taking what God has done in your life? And I trust that you have had experiences of God working in your life. And are you passing that on? Um, I know some of you have passed things on to me as a father. And, and I really appreciate that, that God has done in your life. Um, are you providing wise counsel? Are you modeling maturity? Are you dealing with the problems and issues that spring up rather than ignoring them and letting them fester until they are out of control? Um, you know, this is we're having a conversation this week about, about that, about how important it is to just deal with issues when they're like this, because if you don't, then they, they will just grow out of control. Um, are you confronting what's evil? 
Are you protecting your family, or is your wife having to hammer at you all the time about taking care of business? On the flip side, sometimes fathers go overboard the other way. They treat problems like Simeon and Levi. Um, my dad, who left, I don't know, I think it was five or six or something, but um, he was a dad who was a car mechanic by day and came home and it was one of those dads who just wanted peace and quiet. And uh, uh, he, I just remember, he was kind of this dad that like, if me and my brother were kind of behaving, it was fine, but when we got to a certain level, he would just go, you know, and just, uh, and it's kind of funny because he would get loud and just uh, almost, it was almost comical. Uh, uh, but um, what's funny is, not, he, wasn't, he wasn't a monster, like, he didn't abuse us, but it was just how he handled things. It was just like out of control, rage, yelling kind of thing. Like, instead of like just handling it when we were a little bit you know, disobedient, he would just let it get to a point, and then he would just go blow his top. And, um, and we joke around in the Herman family that like that gene you know, has continued through the, 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 different, the different men um, and, and, and who, who has it. So, <laughs> um, But godly leadership is servant leadership. Godly leadership is not all about me. What's going to happen to me and my reputation now that you've done this, which is what Jacob was thinking. Godly leadership is what's going to happen to them. God has given me these lives that he's entrusted to me. How am I leading them? How am I shaping them? How am I equipping them? How am I helping them? Even if it costs me dearly, and it will, am I leading them like Jesus? Am I taking out my cross? Am I loving with a self-sacrificing kind of love? So what is the cure for all this mess in chapter 34? Well, we remember just not many minutes ago, what was our first observation? That this chapter is missing a central character. It's God. So if we want to avoid these kinds of heartaches, we have to get back to God. We need to allow Him to have control of our lives because He's the one that gives us true freedom to fulfill the Creator's design. I don't need to throw off the yoke of God's ownership on my life to pursue reckless liberties to find happiness. I don't have to do that. I don't need to. I need to find God's place for me. I need to look at God's gifts to me and how He intends me to use them. God's opportunities He puts in front of me every day. Um, and seize them and make the most of them. And there's where I'll find lasting satisfaction um, in the will of God. I'll never find it anywhere else because he, he knows our needs. Um, and it even says in Ephesians 2.10, he created us for good works that we should walk in them. So God gives true freedom. And I don't need to give into fleshly desires and greed. Just because I want it doesn't mean I have to have it. God is not a stingy father. He says we can ask him. God gives lasting satisfaction. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. God brings justice and will do so at the proper time. God's justice will be brought one way or another, on the sinner or on his son. Um, 
And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning, even in communion. We know that God brought justice on His Son so that we could have freedom. Um, God executes sure justice. And then finally, for those who have the responsibility to lead, it can be a daunting task and sometimes confusing, uh, fearful task. But God gives divine guidance and strength. I don't have to be passive in my leadership or reckless in it or abusive in it if I walk with God. God empowers for righteous leadership. So what's going to become of Jacob and his family here? It ends with this altercation between him and his sons. Well, spoiler alert for next week. You'll have to come back to find out. But you can probably guess that it will have something to do with God keeping his covenant promises and purposes despite Jacob's and his family's human frailties. Again. So that's the good news. It's just, it's just astounding. But that is the theme of Genesis. Um, it will, God will bail them out. Um, he will not let them be thwarted. It's, I, I, I kind of wanted to start going into chapter 35 because it's amazing what God does in the midst of all of this mess. But I'll, I'll just hold my tongue and you guys can come back next week and see what God does. It's just like, wow. I mean, if you're Jacob, you'd be like, why didn't I do something about this? You were, you were right there the whole time. So while we close in prayer, I'm going to ask the deacons to, to please come forward. And, um, and the way we're going to do uh, the communion time is um, you guys can just start um, distributing the bread and juice. We're going to distribute both the bread and the juice. <clears throat> well, one, uh, we're going to distribute both of them to where you kind of have one in each hand. And while they're distributing them, I'm just going to um, talk a little bit here and read some verses. And then after that, <clears throat> um, we'll partake. So if the book of Genesis has taught us anything, it mimics the words of the one song we sing. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. Um, you alone. Um, I love that song. Um, as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, let us praise the Lord Jesus with all our hearts as he is the only one who can rescue us from the hopelessness of life without God. And I'm going to read from Ephesians 2. Um, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the alienated 
from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without having no hope. I mean, hmm. I, don't, I don't know about you, but when I, when I um, came to trust Christ as my Savior, I did. I felt like I had no hope. Um, and and I, I remember the day that I called out to him, and I just, I felt, I mean, I know that, you know, we talk about, like, oh, no tingly feeling and this and that and whatever, but I just, I knew that when I called out to him, he was real. And, and I instantly went from no hope to having hope in my life. Um, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near by the blood of Christ. We praise the Lord for that. He brought us near so that we can have a relationship with Almighty God. I just want to read one more section here in 1 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> but in the following, but in 11, 17, I'll read on here. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And real quick, I'm going to skip to verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If we just take a moment and just bow our heads and um, I'll give us all a moment just again, take some time to examine your hearts, especially in the area of relationships, which I remember giving a message about communion before, and I really feel like this passage that Paul is hitting on is like, we are one in Christ. It's a body of Christ, and when there are, when there are not things that are right in relationships with one another, then, then it, it's the issue is there's there's a, not a unity in the body of Christ. So just take some time to um, express to the Lord and ask Him to forgive you for any unresolved areas of conflict where you stand in the wrong, um, perhaps holding grudges or withholding forgiveness. And think of the verse because I think I shared a couple weeks ago when I shared. This verse, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Sometimes we do everything that we can do, and the other person is not willing to, you know, allow peace to happen in a relationship. But just think through those things, and, and I'll pray, and then we'll continue.